welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And I'm not entirely sure how this happened, John, but this is our third episode dedicated to the saga of Barth the Snifelsas, or Barth the God of Snowfell. Well, I know how this happened. We recorded the last episode when we were super tired, and it's mm. it's possible, it's just barely possible that we were a little disorganized. I don't think so. I'd say we were excited, and mm. we also had beer. <laughs> well, we almost always have beer. Not, I regard that as part of the control for the experiment. Yeah, well, not, tonight I don't have beer. My my beer fridge was empty, so um, I'm drinking mead, which is it's quite yeah, it's an nice, upgrade. Actually. Yeah, it's an upgrade for you. It's good. Well, anyway, whatever the reason, however it happened, we decided to turn these last six chapters into their own story. And reading it over again, I can I can sort of see our point. They are pretty <laughs> packed, just like sagas tend to be. Yeah, as as usual, we're really we're really selling the merchandise. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, there's there's a lot to look forward to, but uh, first we need to talk about how we got here. Could we just explain that in a couple sentences, or do we got to do the old? Last time on Barth Saga. Barth's son Guest took over the protagonist role after a childhood spent under the tutelage of his sister Helga and then his father, two mentors who hate all other people and don't even much like each other. Having lived all his young life in the mountain caves of these two trollish relatives, Guest is well-trained for a life of churlish misanthropy. Guest begins his career by breaking the nose of a troll giant named Corbjorn at a Yule party, where Guest also gains a faithful wonder dog named Snarty. Corbjorn and his dripping nose wait for revenge, which comes when Guest's brother Thord falls in love with a woman he believes to be Corbjorn's daughter. The woman is Solrun, and she's Kolbjorn's prisoner. Thord and Thorvald travel with Guest to collect Solrun, and nearly fall prey to a trap set by the devious Kolbjorn and his ogreish allies. In a rousing brouhaha, Guest, his brothers, and Snarty the Wonder Dog manage to survive, killing their foes and rescuing Solrun. Solrun and Thord are married, but Guest still has an itchy traveling foot. And the only cure is a trip to Norway, where he expects to confront both his fate and the spreading Christian faith of the Norwegian king, Olaf Tryggvason. How will guests fare in a land where the old gods are being replaced and the land itself is angry? Well, find out this time on Saga Thing. Uh, You know, I have a real, real suspicion that that new ending of yours is just a way for you to avoid having to record the episode previews. I guess we'll find out if you're right. This time on <laughs> Saga Thing. Uh, I hate you a little. <laughs> All right. Are, are we just uh, diving in this time? We're just going to jump? I mean, yeah, I think we mostly covered it in the recap, right? This is, this is the part of the saga where the lands of the north come to grips with Christianity, right? We've seen this story in other sagas. Mm-hmm. Guest's father, Barth, is basically a land spirit at this point in the narrative, and that places him in alliance with the pagan faith. And his sister Helga isn't much different, but Guest is living in a different world than the one his father and sister abandoned. In this brave new world, Christianity is ascendant, and Olaf Tryggvason is pushing for the conversion of the lands and the peoples of the north. I mean, yes, that pretty much covers it. Uh, but it's not like the spirits and gods of the old world are retreating quietly. I think that's oh, no, sure. worth noting. Um, essentially, what separates this last section from the rest of the saga is that we're going to see that dynamic that we've seen before of the ghosts of the land rising up and fighting back against Christian encroachment of their land and their descendants. Right. And in this saga, 
the religious and historical moment play out as part of a family dynamic. As the son of a land god, how will guests deal with the pressure to adopt a new faith? Yeah, I feel like we keep talking ourselves into this being a better saga than it probably is. And I'm I'm genuinely <laughs> feeling that, John. I've, <laughs> after the last episode, I was thinking, this is a damn fine saga. Uh-huh. Yeah, go back and read it from the beginning again. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, I mean, it might be fair, you know. Uh, all right, let's just see how the actual story holds up to the hype. All right, after you. Part 8. Your party has stopped for the evening at a King's Mead Hall to rest after your last adventure. As you wash the dust of the road from your throats with the King's good ale, a strangely dressed man enters the hall and approaches you. (laughs) You've got to be kidding. I don't have to explain myself to you. No, I mean, I get it. I just can't believe that this is where we're going with this. Or maybe I can. Oh, I don't know. Strap in, Andy, because this is happening. Okay. All right. Uh, Guest and his brothers survive their battle royale on the cliffs, but soon they're getting restless in Iceland. Uh, They book passage on a ship to Norway the following summer, and the whole group goes along. Guest, his brothers Thord and Thorvald, Thord's wife Solrun, and Snotty the Wonder Dog. Hooray for Snotty the Wonder Dog! Hooray indeed. Mm -hmm. Now, when they reach Trondheim in Norway, Guest and Snotty stay by the ship in a small shelter, but the others go and present themselves at the court of the king. So... We know we're a generation past where we were last time we could figure out an exact time frame for the saga. But mm-hmm. at this point, we learned that the current king is Olaf Tryggvason. So we can make a couple of assumptions. One, since Olaf only reigned for five years, we know it's somewhere near the end of the 10th century, somewhere in the years 995 to 1000. Yeah, that, that of course. Yeah. But the other assumption, which we kind of talked about in the introduction, is that this is going to now turn toward a story of Christianization and conversion. Well, I don't know that we have to make a massive intuitive leap to get to that, right? No. Uh, Olaf's a conversion enthusiast. And Boy, he is he. immediately tells the newcomers that they need to be baptized if they want to spend the winter with him. So my surmise was correct. Your, your surmise was based on the second paragraph of the chapter. I can read. So it's elementary, my dear Sexton. Mm-hmm. No, not so fast. Uh, Thord, Thorvald, and Solrun... Uh, All three of them eventually do agree to the baptism, largely because they've probably read a few other sagas and know what happens to people who refuse to convert when Olaf tells them to. Why, what's a few gouged out eyes and public tortures among friends, though, John? It's horrible. That's what it is. I know. It is terrible. Now, so Thord and company make the not being tortured choice and convert. Mm -hmm. Uh, They then spend the winter with Olaf. Uh, And one day, Olaf and Thord get to talking, and Olaf learns that Guest is still living in that shack down by the ship. And he offers to make Thord a member of his household if he brings guests to meet the king. See, Olaf smells another heathen in need of converting. Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, I wonder, if you if you laid out all the stories of Olaf trying to convert people to Christianity, how many years would he actually have had to be king to do all that? I think like 13 and a half years, minimum. You just made that up. I did, yes. But that seems fair <laughs> since most of the saga writers are doing the same thing. So who cares? Right, right. I and mean, that's my point. This is another kind of motif, right? It's just as untethered from history as the trolls. Mm-hmm. Olaf's place in these sagas is to be an overbearing force for Christianity, just as Harold Fairhair stands as an overbearing force of centralized rule. True, but overbearing is a strong word for King Olaf in terms of converting people to Christianity. I'm not sure overbearing is too strong of a word when you're talking about Icelandic sagas and their perspective on Olaf. 
they don't sure. shy away from his rather insistent uh, personality and behavior. That's true. He himself is overbearing, but he yes. is also a representative of Christianity in the same way that, say, Charlemagne is to continental Europe, right? Sure. He sure Charlemagne is a bit overbearing when you really get down to it. If you ask yes. the, the Spanish <laughs> and the uh, the Saxons, yeah. But uh, I, th- I think there's a lot of people who would agree with you there. But in retrospect, in hindsight, you know, uh, he's he's quite mm-hmm. important, and so I think I think there's something of that going on with Olaf Tryggvason. I mean, yeah. important and overbearing are not mutually exclusive. I think if you look at history, many of the people who end up being very important are probably fairly overbearing right. individuals. Quite right. So anyways, yeah. So what what a given author thinks of Olaf is actually less important than how Olaf is used to further the narrative. And he's always exactly used right. for that. Uh, so he's always got time to give conversion that personal touch in whatever saga he's in because that's his motif profile. Right. right. So in one saga, he's a reasonable philosopher king. And in another, he's an overbearing zealot. Right. That's exactly. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. Um, in others, for example, he's he's forcing Rao the Strong to swallow a poisonous snake for refusing to be baptized. Remember that? <laughs> I mean, hell, as long as we're at it, in Halford's saga, Olaf moonlights as a superhero sailor named Anchor Fluke who rescues incompetent skippers from shipwrecks. Ah, yes. Anchor Fluke. We haven't mentioned him in a while. <laughs> Faster than a speeding long ship. More powerful than... Other contemporary Scandinavian kings (laughs) able to leap to religious conclusions in a single bound. Look out there in the bay. It's a ghost seal. (laughs) It's a narwhal. It's anchor fluke. (laughs) I'm surprised you brought the uh, the ghost seal back. Well done. (laughs) No, I I didn't think you were going to bring that level of commitment to this bit, John, but I approve. (laughs) I approve completely. Uh, did we ever prove conclusively that Anchor Fluke and Olaf are the same person, or are you just jumping to conclusions? I mean, all I'm saying is that no one's ever seen them in the same place at the same time. But Anchor Fluke uh, was wearing glasses. Yeah, so. uh, and Olaf doesn't <laughs> yeah, wear glasses. Exactly. Uh, so it's a pretty flimsy. Uh, it's a pretty flimsy disguise. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, what kind of Olaf are we getting in this version of the story? Well, I mean, that's interesting because Guest has clearly heard some stories about Olaf's enthusiasm for converting people. Yeah, and when Thord comes and asks him to come see the king, Guest replies, I am not eager to meet him because I'm told he's so overbearing that he wants to control everything, even what other men believe. So your your Liam Neeson has evolved since the last episode. Well, it's not Liam Neeson. (laughs) Guest is the son of Barth, who is Liam Neeson. So there's a... It's, it's just right. there's a tinge there. Just a tinge. Right. Son of Liam Neeson. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that uh, Guest has definitely heard about the poison snakes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Thord eventually manages to convince him to come along, but Guest is in no mood to be compliant. So when he's brought to Olaf, Guest opens the conversation with an unceremonious, What business do you have with me? The same that I have with other men, that you believe in the true God. <laughs> what a lame opening. <laughs> what a lame that's how you're gonna that's your hook come on Olaf well I mean look you complained that he's uh that he's too overbearing in some stories <laughs> not over- I mean this is him being reasonable yeah yeah well it's just not great anyway so guests replies I have no mind to renounce the faith of my kinsmen before me I have a feeling that if I renounce those customs I won't have long to live well the lives of men are in the hands of God but no man in my kingdom will be allowed to follow heathen habits for long It seems likely enough, Lord, that your faith is better than mine. But in the face of threats or force, I will not renounce my belief. 
so be it. I think you're the type who'd rather give up your faith on your own rather than by another man's force. Be welcome with us during this winter. Hmm. See, that's a quick turnaround for Olaf. It's definitely, we're getting more Philosopher King than Maniac with a hot poker this time. Yeah, we sure are. Well, you know, you catch more pagans with honey than with vinegar, John. Yeah, that's not always Olaf's attitude, uh, but it's working out for him here. Uh, before Christmas rolls around, Guest agrees to take the cross. Well, I mean, that was that was awfully fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's worth noting he's not fully converted, though. Because right. taking the cross in this context, it refers to a kind of preliminary ritual. Um, you see it in Vikings a couple times if you watch that show. Um, I think mm-hmm. uh, Rolo takes that preliminary yes, taking the cross, right? Uh, but but Guest announces that he's going to convert at some point in the future mm-hmm. and gets the sign of the cross marked in ash on his forehead. Yeah, he's agreed to enter a kind of novitiate phase. More or less, yes. A, a sort of secular novitiate. And shortly after that, the Christmas festivities begin in Olaf's court. And this is one of those points of transition in the text marking the move to Christianity. Remember, a couple of years ago, Guest was attending Yule feasts in a troll woman's hut. Mm-hmm. Now he's wassailing and eggnogging it up at a Christmas party at the court of a Norwegian king. See, Christianity brings access to wealth, but there is a cost there too. And those restless spirits of the land that usually don't like Christianity, well, Guest's father is one of those spirits. Yep. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So it's it's Christmas Eve in Trondheim, oh. and everyone is drinking and having a great time. Uh, Olaf's in a good mood. Guest's behaving himself. All's right with the world. At first. Of course, at first. Mm-hmm. Late into the evening, a new guest arrives. A new guest, you say? No. Yeah. See, I know. That name's so confusing. No, a guest with a U. An unexpected person arriving and receiving hospitality. Oh, I see what you mean. A guest. You could have yes. just said so. Uh, Now, this new man is huge and terrible looking, gray faced, dark haired with roving eyes, a long nose and a curling black beard. He's wearing a metal helm, a mail coat and a lethal looking sword. Mm. He also has two thick, heavy gold rings, one around his neck and one around his arm. And he crosses the hall and stands silently in front of Olaf. Now, no one in the hall says a word. The conversations around the room all stop. And everyone is eventually just staring at this man in silence. And once there's complete quiet, the man speaks. Here I've come, and nothing has been offered to me by this great king. Colbjorn, you're back. I shall be more generous than you, for I will offer to give the treasures that I have here now to that man who dares take them from me. Hmm. But I do not believe... There's a man who's man enough among you here. And then he turns and walks out. I'm getting a distinct Sir Gawain in the Green Knight kind of vibe from this guy. You think? Yeah. <laughs> um, I should point out, yep. he he turns and goes, but he uh, he leaves a wretched stink behind him. I, I know. I, I I know what you just said, and I... I, I want to talk about the Sir Gowan stuff, but I also know how, the, how this sounds. <laughs> he leaves a wretched stink behind him. It sounds like we're talking about a room-sized Dutch oven. Oh, yeah. He gasses the trench on his way out, and that, that's, that's what you're saying, right? <laughs> he crop dusts the room. Yeah, he uh, cracks an absolutely unholy rat. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad we went to school for so many years, just so we could make jokes about <laughs> demonic monsters sneaking the old two-cheek squeak. Flatulator, Olaf. Flatulator. Oh, 
all right, all right. Uh, this is not our finest moment. No, sorry. I, I know. I, I actually do have a point here, though. Oh, good. Because otherwise, this would just be hot air. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Ah, a Faulkner yes, reference. Uh, <laughs> I get it. Because I live in Oxford. Uh, it's actually a Macbeth reference, but I realize Faulkner made the reference as well. Uh, no, but my point is that medieval writers often make this connection between smell and meaning. Mm, yeah. Uh, this is something you can see pretty widely. Both both good or holy things and evil or threatening things will frequently carry odor, right? Yeah. Uh, medieval saints' bodies are notably sweet-smelling. Uh, visitations by angels are often described as being accompanied by sweet or fresh scents and so on. On the other hand, a foul stench is a sign that a creature is bad news, right? It's a corrupting smell. Odors don't really get a lot of attention in modern writing, I don't think, at least comparatively speaking. Right? We tend to rely on sight and sound rather than sight and smell. Yeah, no, you're right. Didn't we Didn't we just talk about odors in a previous episode? Uh, no, we talked about odors off the air before we recorded this because I wanted to bring it up. But not today. We didn't talk about it today. So I, that's why I must... But we didn't... At some point, we have to record it so that other people can hear about I it. I see. So you were talking to me probably about this particular scene. <laughs> like last week it does or seem likely yes that's hilarious uh as far as i knew that was in a previous episode never mind oh. <laughs> well uh in this case uh olaf recognizes the danger of the mystery man's funky stink and he warns everyone to hold still until it disperses when it does several men are found to be half dead and incoherent from the stench wow and nearly every dog in the place has been killed by the corruption. This saga kills dogs? Yep. You never kill dogs, John. <laughs> well, f- fortunately, guest dog Snotty is wise enough to hold his breath, and he survives, mm-hmm. as does King hey! Olaf's dog, Viki. Uh, yeah, let's be grateful for that. Uh, meanwhile, Olaf turns to guest and says, So who do you think that was? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Because, you know, that's the kind of thing you want to know. It is. It is. So Guest says, I've been told by my kinsman of a king named Ragnar. I think I recognize this from those stories. He was a great murderer who killed his own mother and father along with many other people. He ruled Heluland and other countries, but when he'd ruled a long time, he had himself buried alive with 500 men in his ship called Slothin. I think his mound is still in the northern reaches of Heluland. Yeah, uh, Guest is remarkably well-informed about this undead Viking. Remarkably. It's it's almost, I'm incredulous is what I'm going to say. Uh-huh. This is, uh, what what we have here is an exposition dump. Yes, we do. (laughs) Uh, Or we have to assume that Guest likes to keep abreast of any new developments in the world of undead Vikings hundreds of miles away from where he lives. That makes perfect sense, yes. I mean, these are two possibilities. Now that I think of it, yes. Uh, Of course, knowing that much about the situation actually kind of sets Guest up for a rotten situation, because Olaf now responds. I think you speak the truth. Now my request is that you... Guest, go and fetch those ring treasures from this Ragnar. So we have a quest. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Guest recognizes it right away. He says, This might be called by some a death sentence, my lord. But I will go if you outfit my journey for the trip. Hey, John, we should probably yep. be clear that this undead Viking is named Ragnar, not Ragnar. And that we are ah. in a different historical period, not the same guy. 
Right. Not that different. Uh, a century or so past Ragnar Lothbrok, definitely. Yeah, well, uh, remember Ragnar Lothbrok didn't do all the things that uh, were, that uh, Ragnar has sure. described, right? So, uh, but there might be some people who are thinking that this whole section is starting to sound a little familiar. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, there mm-hmm. are some distinct similarities here to a motif in romance poetry, a a challenge or a game brought to a famous king's court. The beheading game challenge in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, hmm, is probably mm-hmm. the most well known of those. But it's not the only one. Right. And I, I know that's a whole conversation we can have, but I think we'll be saving that until um, later uh, so we can sort of talk about the entire episode and what does and doesn't line up. Okay. Um, what did you want to talk about instead as we move into this? I mean, we could talk about the fact that the rest of this saga is going to play out like a really strange D&D session. Yeah, I think I knew where this was going when you had that very lengthy descriptive uh, <laughs> title for this section. <laughs> Uh, well, but it really does. Uh, and for the record, I have to credit friend of the podcast, Will Beal, for making this point to me. Hey, Will. Uh, but since he did, I can't get it out of my head now. And so now that's what's happening. Uh, Olaf outfits guest with a raiding party. The most important figures are a priest named Jostin, a male magician named Krok, okay. and a female uh, mage named Krekja. And about 18 assorted fighter and rogue types. We don't get names for them? Come on now. Nah, they're NPCs. Uh, there's a stat <laughs> sheet somewhere. We can just call them all NPC 1, NPC 2, whatever. Okay. Uh, Guest himself is a pretty high-level barbarian. Is he now? Really? A barbarian? <laughs> yeah. It's not an insult. It's a first edition thing. Uh, when the Unearthed Arcana formally added the barbarian in about 1985, that became the go-to stand-in for Viking-type warriors. And it was basically the meat shield class. Uh-huh. Sure. Sure. Um, you've just revealed yourself as a huge dork, but I mean, we already knew. And anyway, was that was that under wraps until now? Yes. I just, yes. yes. Um, I'm going to go five E. Um, I, I think I want to be uh, a barbarian warlock aligned with Asmodeus, and I'm going to kick ass with my warhammer, and I want to cast uh-huh. a whole lot of Eldritch Blast. Wow, it's going to be great. What do you think? Yeah, I, I see a problem here, which is that you think you're playing the game. <laughs> I'm guess the barbarian warlock. Oh, are you? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, then in that case, uh, you should have Snouty the Wonder Dog along with you as well. I absolutely. He's, uh, he's, he's going to be joining familiar. the expedition. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> no. Okay. So oddly, guest half-brothers Thord and Thorvald don't end up being a part of this adventure for some reason. It, mm-hmm. it, it's not explained. They just don't go along. Right. Busy on a side quest or something. Must be. Yeah. Oh, and Olaf provides a somewhat unusual set of supplies for the party as well. Um, he's a real DM if you ever if you ever needed one. Uh-huh. Uh, he gives guests a short sword, a length of cloth, a candle, three seasons worth of food, and forty downlined iron shoes. Sure, <laughs> all of those things seem equally useful and not at all extraneous. Not at all. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff even comes with instructions, like the cloth is for guests to wrap around himself before he enters Ragnar's Mound. But some of it, like the 40 metal booties, they're just handed over without a word, and we don't really get a sense of what they are. <laughs> right. I mean, you kind of get the impression that Olaf's been trying to foist those off on someone for months. <laughs> Psst. See if he'll take the iron shoes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad business deal. He's trying to just, he's got a whole <laughs> warehouse full of them. Right. We're just giving them away. <laughs> no, they're very, very important. You're going to need these. All 40 Free of pair them. with every conversion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's possible that Guest doesn't notice the shoes uh, because he's too busy being annoyed about having to take Yolstein, the priest, along. He's not a big fan. 
Yeah, no, every party says that until they need a cleric. Mm-hmm. Uh, although in this case, the problem is that Guest suspects King Olaf of continuing to try to push him into converting to Christianity. Yeah, I mean, it is Olaf, and it's probably a fair suspicion. Part 9. Roll for initiative. See, there it is. Yep. So uh, Guest and his party make their way to Dumsoff by ship. And while they're still sailing, a one-eyed man in a spotted blue cloak sails out from shore to join their party. Is this a, is this a random encounter now? Oh, no, there's nothing random about it. But I like that you're getting into the spirit of the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so in case anyone missed it, we should probably just point out that Domshof is a callback to the beginning of our saga. Mm-hmm. This is the land where Guest's grandfather, King Dom, once ruled. Yeah. And it's definitely no coincidence that a one-eyed man who is almost certainly an avatar of Odin, now joins them. Oh, no, that's, just, that's just a baseless accusation. You can't prove that. No, uh, I can't. Now, Guest has taken the sign of the cross. He's traveling with a cleric sent by King Olaf Tryggvason, and he's sailing by his troll giant pagan go- grandfather's lands. He really couldn't be doing more to offend the Landvater, the, the land spirits here, if he tried. I mean, this is what Terry Pratchett called the level of antagonism that's basically wearing wet copper armor on a hilltop in a thunderstorm and yelling, all gods are bastards. <laughs> oh, Terry Pratchett. And uh, one of the gods has come for a visit. Mm-hmm. Yes, this uh, one-eyed man who's named Raudgrani, uh, he starts aggressively preaching pagan lore at Guest and his companions, and he argues that it would be wise to sacrifice to the gods for luck on this journey. And Guest is just sort of ignoring all this. Pretty much, yes. I mean, we should say he's an equal opportunity ignorer. Uh, it's not like he's been asking Yostin the Christian for chick tracts and a quickie baptism. <laughs> well, Guest may not want to deal with this, but after a few days of listening to Rothgrani's increasingly loud proselytizing, Yostin the priest has had enough. Mm. He waits until Rothgrani is in the middle of one of his speeches, and then he smashes him in the head with a crucifix. And knocks him overboard. And when Ralthgrani doesn't resurface in the water, well, everyone on the boat agrees it must have been an avatar of Odin. And Guest ignores all this, too. That's some real hands-off leadership from Guest. Uh-huh. And so the logic of the men on the ship is that because the corpse of the guy Yostin beat to death didn't float, that he must have been a god? Well, he's definitely not a witch. Right, fair enough. <laughs> but, or a uh, church. Yeah, I don't have a lot rock. of... <laughs> But I don't. I don't have a lot of experience with uh, buoyancy of fresh bodies. I can't really. Uh, you never studied. <laughs> well, I was doing other things in grad school. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but we should say that the people on the ship were almost certainly right about Rothgrani. Mm-hmm. If the missing eye and the spotted blue cloak weren't enough, the named Rothgrani is a recognized name of Odin, which appears in some of the sagas, mm-hmm. uh, the legendary sagas, though rather than the Icelandic sagas. So you got to look at. All right, uh, right. so we now know that Jostin is going to be useful on this trip. Now, Andy, allow me to change the subject. Okay. You may or may not know just how much of my wayward youth was spent being a dungeon master. I have a hint of it, but I, I'm i guessing a lot more than I even think. Uh, you would be correct. I never got okay. to play the game much uh, because I was the kid who had all the books and had actually read them. So I had to run the game. Uh, and okay. these were the first edition books. So I'm talking about the really weird stuff that Arneson and Gygax and everyone put in there. Like how to run a randomized check for whether your character develops a fatal illness or runs afoul of a shadowy corrupt guild or gets a parasite or something. Uh, all the versions of D&D include ways to kill you, but first edition got really specific about it. 
And so it feels like you're about to tell us something bad. Uh, let's just say someone's about to fail their save versus plot device. The, uh, The party makes landfall in Greenland, but it's late in the season and they decide to make a winter camp. They settle in, but they soon spot something strange in the cliffs nearby. It looks like a kettle filled with gold sitting on top of two bars of gold. See, there's a leprechaun joke in there, but I'm I'm gonna let it go by. I'm just gonna I, let it be. I admire your fortitude. Now, I'm doing that for Liam Neeson. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Now, given that there aren't any rainbows in sight, uh, guest is slightly suspicious, so he sends Croc and Krekia, his mages, to investigate and to bring back the gold. And of course, mm-hmm. the entire party is interested in this giant pot of treasure, which means everyone is watching when they climb up to the gold. The first thing they need to do is they got to check for traps. You got to check for traps, guys. <laughs> nope. Come on. Sorry, these are magicians. Wrong class. Uh, you're right, it would have been a good idea, though. Uh, instead, everyone watches in horror as Croc and Krekia reach out for the gold, and the earth suddenly splits open and swallows them whole. You've got to check for traps. <laughs> oh, That's it, really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So even in Greenland, the land spirits are working against this party. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. Uh, and I think uh, at this point, we can probably lay the D&D metaphor to rest, more or less. Probably less. No, no. We'll never get through this thing if we keep that up the entire time. Uh, I think it could be fun. I mean, you know, we'll see here and there. Uh, So this, uh, (laughs) the Earth uh, manifesting traps and working against the group. uh, This feels like another manifestation of something we've talked about before, the restless spirits of the pagan past. Right. Now, I've lost track of how many times we've seen this, but it's a lot. Christianity's arrival is depicted as traumatic to the land and the old ways. It may be a good thing from the later Christian perspective, but... It's not a simplistic thing. That may have something to do with the way Iceland is converted, but there are a lot of external pressures involved. Right, and most of that external pressure in this period is coming from King Olaf. Absolutely. The, the same King Olaf who's sent them off on this quest into the north. Yeah, and you can see how this all lines up for the author. Oh, sure. Uh, incidentally, given that Guest's an Icelander and he sent them up the cliff, I'm counting Krok and Krekja as Norwegian companions. I think that's fair. I think that's quite fair. Um, They definitely got red-shirted right out of the saga, didn't they? Uh, They got red-smeared out of the saga. Yeah. Now, that's not the only attempt to disrupt Guest's mission during the winter. Now, after they lose the magicians, Guest takes night duty guarding their camp, and one night, a demonic bull appears from nowhere and charges the shack everyone's sleeping in. Now, Guest attacks it first with an axe and then with his wrestling strength. (laughs) But he's not strong enough to hurt the bull. And it slowly pushes him up against the wall of the shack and tries to gore him. Mm-hmm. Just as Guest gives up hope, Jostein, the priest, runs out of the shack and smacks the bull with that fancy crucifix right in the spine. Mm-hmm. And the bull crumbles into the earth and disappears. Right. I mean, things are looking up. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, the actual spirit force of the land is actively working to kill everyone. But, hey, no casualties this time. It pays to have a cleric mm-hmm. uh, in your party, doesn't that's, it? That's the that's the motto of every party. Yeah. So that's pretty much the winter. The group spends a paranoid winter by the shore waiting for another attack, but things remain quiet until spring. Ah, spring. When a young man's fancy turns to thought of despoiling the burial mound of undead Vikings. And pilgrimages. Right, sure, and pilgrimages. Uh <laughs> Guest and his party now make their way across the land, uh, first passing over glaciers, and then finding themselves at the edge of a vast lava field. Yeah, a lava field. Sounds like someone needs some extra tough shoes. Yeah, it does seem like that. 
If only one had <laughs> shoes. If only of one iron. were carrying several crates of iron shoes. Uh, unfortunately, they do a quick head count and they realize that there are 21 total people in the party. Only 20 pairs of shoes. Wait a minute. There were 23 people until the Earth ate the magicians. This is poor planning. Right. So apparently Olaf expected some of the NPCs to beef it by this point. <laughs> Nothing like having a king with faith in your ability to survive, huh? <laughs> so how are they going to resolve this? Two guys only get one shoe. They got to hop around. <laughs> anyone? Anyone volunteer? You want to hop? No, uh, no. It's it's more like everyone grabs a pair of shoes and no one gives any to the priest. <laughs> I <laughs> So they've decided the land spirits have the right idea. Most of them, yeah. Uh, or, I mean, maybe this is an inversion of the miracles we sometimes see in conversion narratives, right? Where mm-hmm. Christians are protected from flames or burning coals by their faith. Yeah, so the logic is that a Christian shouldn't need protection against lava. All he needs is God. I mean, lava is basically runny coals, right? <laughs> no, not remotely correct. No, not at all. <laughs> I know. That's not what it is. Uh, but whatever their logic, the Norwegians are not looking to share their iron shoes with Jostein. After all, they carried these crates of iron shoes all this way. That's uh, true. Sure enough, the iron shoes with their uh, soft lining stand up to the heat and the sharp rocks of the lava field. But Jostein's shoes are soon cut to ribbons and his feet are bleeding. So much for the walking on coals miracle. I, look, you're the one who said this wasn't the same. Uh, anyway, a uh, guest eventually gives in and carries the priest on his back for the rest of the field, which mm. turns out to be three days walk. Yeah, I think we should be clear here. I don't know what we were kind of goofing around back there. I- I'm not so sure that there's there's flames and lava here. We're talking about a lava field like we've seen in Iceland yeah. where yeah, no. you've got jagged stones everywhere. It's, right. It's no, that's, lava. His feet are cut and bleeding, not yeah. not burned to death right it's a, but we were to be fair we were just presenting it at like a, a hot I lava know, field I know. you know so i want to make sure that merely, our, our merely lovely japes, listeners folks merely jests <laughs> yes exactly just so sharp rocks that's all now guest essentially says that he's only doing this because olaf seemed to think highly of yolstein but we're also seeing that regardless of how they might feel about yolstein personally guest and the others now realize that they need this priest and his god-given power to survive the journey. Oh, oh, is it allegory o'clock already? Where did the time go? <laughs> yes. So at the end of the lava field is what? Uh, another sea, right? Yep. Uh, but there's also a long reef off the shore, and they spot a large grave mound out there. Ooh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Now all they need to do is get out to the reef, break open the grave mound, steal Ragnar's gold, Probably kill him and his 500 undead warriors in the process, then recross the lava field, and they're home by supper. Uh, something like that, yeah. They're going mm. to they're they're need to roll a lot of dice. Yes, they are. Let's see how they do. Part 10. Into the Earth. Ah. How far into the Earth are we going? Are we to the center? I mean, this is gonna, been, it's been a long journey, and now it's time. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I thought we should we should finally uh, bring that back since we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Although right now, since we're in Greenland, not Iceland, probably not the best moment for me to make the reference. No, no, but you know, I appreciate the effort. I see what you're going for there. Thanks. Um, but yeah, they're just going into a burial mound, yeah, not to yeah. the center of the earth. Um, but I like it. You're, it's you're, you're a little nod to Jules Verne. There you go. Hi, Jules. How you doing? Hey. Uh, so uh, at this point in the saga, we're at a very familiar episode, right? This is the 
breaking open a grave that doesn't want to be opened motif. Yeah, we just saw this in Horth Saga, didn't we? We certainly did. Uh, but this one plays out slightly differently. Uh, just like in Horth Saga, the men break the mound open two days in a row, but each time the mound is sealed up whole again the next morning. That's weird. Th- we we don't see that that often. That that whole that process of breaking it open right, and it closes. Right. Uh, Did we just happen to choose the two sagas where that is a I mean, the we motif? Could, we could pretend that we chose them because of the similarity of various motifs. It was just um, that. That that's was it. Uh, you know, we think there's <laughs> we, a lot of effort goes into thinking this through, folks. That's right. Yeah. Uh, no. No casual. <laughs> Uh, no, this is this is very well thought out. Um, so uh, after that, it seals itself up two days in a row. On the third night, Yostin the priest stays up all night to watch the hole they've dug into the mound. And around midnight, Ragnar appears from out of the mound. And this is the dead Viking whose mound they're actually trying to raid. That's the one, yeah. He sees Yostin, who's got some holy water in one hand and his crucifix in the other. Just sitting there scraping bits of Ralph Grunny's skull off that crucifix. A little <laughs> nice. bit of bull hair. Sure. That's nice. You want to be next? That thing's getting pretty grody. You, uh, want, you want some of this? You want some of this now, cross? Uh, Ragnar and Jostin regard one another for a minute. And then Ragnar says, Come with me, priest. And I will make it worth your while. And here are a ring and necklace that I will give you. Gosh. Shiny trinkets. I mean, it's going to be hard to resist walking into the open grave with the nice dead man. <laughs> yeah, no. Know. Uh, Yostin doesn't move or even acknowledge Ragnar's presence. That's a good priest. Good cleric. It goes on like that all night, actually. Yostin has visions. Everything from trolls and demonic fiends to visions of King Olaf and guests. All of them telling him to follow them into the grave. But he just sits there mm-hmm. the entire night. And he sprinkles holy water at any fiends that get too close to him. <laughs> and in the morning, the mound is still open and Jostein is unharmed. Hey. And we once again see how Christian passivity trumps pagan action. Score one for the priest. So yeah. this isn't exactly like the version in Horth's saga. No, no. In Horth's version, Horth gets help from a man in a dark cloak who gives him a sword to stick into the opening to force it to stay open. Mm-hmm. And that man called himself Bjorn. But the men realize it was probably Odin. Right. And that's an important difference. Right? Uh, Just a subtle but important one. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> not terribly subtle. Uh, Bard's no. party already met Odin and he wasn't happy with them. And that's before mm-hmm. Jostin hit him over the head with a crucifix. Uh, this is a different story with a different agenda. Right? Barth's help comes from a priest whose holy water keeps the spirits away. And keeps Odin away, too. For that matter. Well, he's got a heavy crucifix for that. Yeah. So this is a motif that can be deployed to make whatever point the poet wants to make about protection from the restless dead. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now this grave is staying open, at least until sundown. So who's going to go in? Obviously, I think you got to send Yosin the priest uh, because you need your cleric Mm -hmm. and guest who is your barbarian. Uh, But who else is going in? No, actually, the priest is staying outside and helping lower guest down on a rope. Oh, that whole thing. Uh-huh. I know that. I know I know that motif too. <laughs> yeah, this is the moment when Jostein looks pointedly at his bloody feet and he crosses his arms and he's officially off duty. He's like, I'm not going down. Yeah, there. so it's a it's just guest going into the mound. Yeah. Although it, it's worth noting the guy who holds the rope is often the guy who then runs away later when he believes that the the hero who's in the in the barrow is dead, right? Right. Well, stay tuned. 
Oh, let's see what happens. So right now, Guest is going into the mound. Yes. By himself. Yes. So what exactly did he bring the 18 NPCs for? Nobody needs that many Norwegian companions. I mean, as far as that goes, you need an entourage to let everyone know that you're an important figure. Fair enough. I think that's... And also, you need someone to hold the rope, so... Jostin. Jostin, the priest, is holding the rope. Yeah. Well, someone had to carry all those iron shoes. There was a lot of crates of iron shoes. (laughs) Exactly. These other guys seem to have come along to carry a few crates of iron shoes, which are only needed because there are so many guys along on the quest. That's that's right. But Olaf really wanted to clear up space in the royal shed. you got to get rid of all those shoes. There's so many. Uh, That's fair enough. Uh, All right. So Guest is lowered into the mound. But before he goes in, he wraps around himself that cloth that Olaf gave him. Mm hmm. Yeah, and then he winks at the reader and he says, Get it? Just like Sir Gawain. Remember? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a whole history to the idea of a cloth or belt wrapping as part of a knight's wardrobe. But Sir Gawain is the place most modern readers are likely to find it, right? The mm-hmm. the girdle that he, he is given. It actually shows up in everything from biblical references to ceremonial practices of the Cathars and the Templar in the Middle Ages. Hell, uh, if you think about it, even Thor supposedly has a girdle or a belt that doubles his strength when he wears it. Yes, yes, very exciting stuff. But again, this is being repurposed as a magical item given by a Christian king to protect his champion. This saga is doing some interesting things with reorienting its symbology from what you'd expect. Don't tell me what to expect, sir. That's my job. Besides, <laughs> well, uh, you know, while we've been flapping our gums, uh, Guest has already reached the bottom of the mound. Oh, good for him. Uh, he finds Ragnar's ship immediately because it's freaking huge. Yeah, this this ship, and I, I just like this idea that we have a, a a barrow, we have a mound here, but inside is a ship. Um, that that's really great, mm-hmm. um, especially with the archaeology. Yeah, um, we know the ship burials right that are um, pretty extensive, really uh, throughout yeah. the north. But this one is a little over the top. It well, yes, absolutely. It it is down down inside this barrow is a ship, and this is the Slothing. Um, it's supposed to take five hundred men to row this gigantic ship, uh-huh. and as it happens. There are 500 dead men sitting at the oars, just in case Ragnar needed to go anywhere in the afterlife. That's a, that's a lot of corpses. It's uh, a lot. Think so of massacre the ship, that day. The ship is actually meant to be equal to a legendary ship called the Gnothen, which is mostly legendary for being huge. So big ship full of dead men. Lots of dead men. Is it too early to claim this as our Halloween episode? I think we could. Eh, possibly. We got dead 500 yeah, dead people. Yeah, probably. Uh, meanwhile, Guest, who, again, seems to have read the grave-robbing scene from Horth Saga, uh, immediately lights a candle so that the corpses can't move. These are, it's the same. It's very similar. Uh, then the? Guest amuses himself for a while, running up and down the ship, lopping the heads off all the dead men. Okay, so like as you were saying that, I was just imagining him running back and forth up the ship. Then you said he lops their heads <laughs> off, so that's what he's doing while he's running up and down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's it's actually much worse than that. Worse, he's having a great time. Of course, he he's got kid in a dandelion field, just skipping to and fro and popping the heads off one after no, another. No, no. There, there's, there's also this line about the corpses. It says, uh, "Guests saw that all the men had been preparing to stand up until the candlelight shone on them, but after that, they could not move, only roll their eyes and snort from their noses." <laughs> so, John. The whole time Guest is running up and down going whoopee as he chops off the <laughs> the dead men's heads. They're busy clearing their sinuses and glaring at him. 
Yeah. Watching See, I was, it coming. I was going for happy-go-lucky head pruning fun time, but it's pretty grim. From the perspective of the 500 corpses of the dead yeah. men, yes. Yeah. So now at some point, he is just wading through heaps of heads, oh, right? Oh, God, I know. It's like Hell's McDonaldland ball pit in there. <laughs> I think it's a head pit, yes. But yes, <laughs> absolutely. Now, are they still looking annoyed at him at this point? I feel like it's worse if they're still <laughs> judging him silently, their heads separated from right, the bodies. Right, in the pile on the floor. Uh, I can yeah, only like, assume so. Look now, at him. Uh, Look who he thinks he is. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> aren't you so big? Uh, Coming here, lopping off our heads. Just wait till you meet the, the master. I'd like to meet you without a candle sometime. Uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> now, uh, Guest hasn't beheaded every corpse in the place. He he finally finds Ragnar sitting in a tunnel off the main chamber. Ragnar is sitting on a chair surrounded by gold and wearing the golden necklace and arm ring. And this is where things get a little weird. Well, weirder, uh, given what we've just been through. Fair. <laughs> now, instead of just grabbing the gold, Guest suddenly decides to play this whole situation out like a warrior greeting his lord. Mm. And so Guest decides to speak respectfully, and Ragnar bows to him. And Guest says, You are both famous and marvelous to look upon. I have come a long way to see you. You must now reward me well and give me the fine treasures you have. And I will then tell the people far and wide of your generosity. And Ragnar then hands over his helmet and gold rings and mail coat without a word of complaint. Almost as if he's a really good lord. Yeah. Now, why hasn't anyone else thought of this? Polite grave robbing. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> that's so funny. Just say please and thank you. It's such a simple process. Why do you got to go around chopping everybody's head off? Right? God. Calm down, Vikings. So it's all going great until Guest admittedly gets a little bit greedy. Mm. You see, Ragnar hasn't handed over his sword just yet. And so Guest reaches out for that. And suddenly Ragnar leaps at Guest and begins throttling him. Oh, dear. And all of those headless corpses on the ship suddenly rise up and begin shambling toward him. Okay, yeah, this is our Halloween episode. Happy Halloween, boys and ghouls. Looks like guests in a shipload of trouble. Hope he doesn't lose his head. Looks like he's dying to join Ragnar's crew. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we finally found our natural punning level, have we? Yeah, cryptkeeper jokes. There, there is no lower level. Uh, mm. This is the this is the sub basement floor of the pun elevator. Look, I'm not ashamed of who I am. I I <laughs> you watched might HBO. Try it sometime. <laughs> anyway, now that we've completely lost the moment, John, oh, you uh, ruined it. Right. Sorry. Uh, so Ragnar is strangling Guest. The corpses are lurching toward him. Guest's in trouble. Yes. Uh, Ragnar is massively powerful, and Guest can't break free. So he calls on his father, Barth, who we haven't seen in a long time. And suddenly, Barth is there. He's got that uncanny knack of showing up at the most unexpected moments. Right. There's no explanation of how he got into that grave mound in Helulan, but there he is. Yeah, I think we left narrative causality behind a while ago. Did we? Uh, Barth's been making the transition to being a kind of pagan guardian angel, right, for most of this saga. Remember, we talked in the last episode about elements of this saga that start to feel hagiographical, yeah. right? start to feel like saint's life stories. And this is another example of that transition. He's appearing to a petitioner, happens to be his son, 
uh, who's in dire straits and in a locked room or other inaccessible place. Mm. Money for nothing and the arm rings for free. There you go. Mm. That's a dire straits, you see. You Thank followed you. that? You I followed me? it. Okay. I, yeah. All I right. smell what you were cooking and decided to go out for a takeout. He's <laughs> like, I'll pass. I think it's burning. <laughs> anyway, Barth remains fixed in his pagan points of reference. Uh-huh. I think that's important to note. Uh, he's not actually a saint. He just plays one in this saga. Right. A pagan saint, if you will. A paint. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. It's Never getting, apologize. It's not even late. And I, I, I don't have no explanation for why that happened. But the power of the pagan past is clearly it's it's ebbing away. So in the face of this undead monstrosity, Barth, he's actually he's not powerful enough to deal with the problem. He can't do much. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time we see Barth powerless when he's called upon. Right. Now, if this were a lesser podcast, we'd do some kind of cheap cliffhanger here. But fortunately, we're, as we've proven time and time again, a classy operation around here. That's right. That's us. Classy. Mm-hmm. So this is the dramatic climax of the saga, right? Guest, now struggling to breathe, has to call out in desperation, and he calls out to God, promising to convert to Christianity if he gets out of the mound alive. And you know what? Barth failed, but suddenly, Mm -hmm. in a flash of light, not unlike candlelight, if I might, Mm -hmm. King Olaf appears in the mound, and the light shining from him drains Ragnar's strength until he is powerless. King Olaf just just appears in the mound, does he? Yep. Like Barth, he can apparently do that. Okay. And so with Ragnar paralyzed by the divine light of Olaf, Guest now easily overpowers him. And using the short sword given to him by the king, Guest chops off Ragnar's head. It's a beheading scene. It is. So we're still seeing those little Sir Gawain parallels, aren't we? Yes, but here's something that isn't in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. After he cuts off Ragnar's head, he places it between his buttocks. Not, it's not. Now, that's <laughs> I, I kind of a weird it, place to store it. I want to make it very clear. He puts it between the corpse's buttocks. <laughs> I know that. It's it's still an odd place to store it. I mean, we're, True, both, but we're both men of the world, Andy. I, I wouldn't dream of telling another person where to store the severed head of their undead foe. But really now. I think we must have talked about this before when you defeat the Draugr, right? You, you've... I think we have, but it was probably a really long time ago. Um, so a Draugr is a, a revenant, like a ghost, but with a physical form and body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can also think of it kind of like a zombie, uh, which is also in keeping with our Halloween theme, mm-hmm. uh, but one that acts with intelligence and has most of the qualities of a troll. Right, so not much like a zombie at all. A zombie troll, maybe? Band name. Zombie uh, troll. All right. You know, there is a band uh, that I, I quite enjoyed when I was living in Russia called Mummy Troll. Mummy Troll? Really? Yeah. Mummy Troll. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if they'd sue if we started Zombie Troll. Uh, I, well, it's different. It's it's a different right, concept entirely. Uh, so, to appear in a fair amount of Germanic literature, including quite a few of the sagas. And the mm-hmm. preferred way of laying them to rest is to cut off their head and lay it by their butt. It keeps them from reanimating somehow. I mean, if your face was in your butt, would you want to reanimate? I mean, look. <laughs> I mean, you'd you'd wake up for a second, you'd take a sniff, and then you'd be like, I'm out. Don't you wash? <laughs> it's, What's it's, wrong with you? <laughs> what? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute now. 
You're telling me <laughs> that on a daily basis, I could... Uh, uh, the saintly odor of spices <laughs> and flowers, <laughs> sir. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I, 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 I don't know what to say. I, it's next a time, treat. Next time we get together, we're going to be like two dogs <laughs> reuniting. Oh, no. I Not two wait. dogs. Not two dogs. Not for what I'm hearing about you. <laughs> All right, so, so all right, um, it'll be one, it'll be one sided, uh, but you know, God, we're like two four year olds with PhDs. It's really awful. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Uh, what were we talking about? We're talking about. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. We were talking about why you put the head in the buttocks, right? Because it keeps them from reanimating. That's right. It keeps them from reanimating. Yeah, uh, uh, we saw this uh, quite a few times actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gretter did this to Glom's body in Gretzer Saga. And um, as you say, it's it's a well-established rule. You, it's it's like using silver against werewolves. We see it all the time. Right now, now somewhat awkwardly, when Guest was lopping the heads off five hundred oarsmen earlier, he forgot this crucial step, which is why those corpses probably were able to stand up and start walking toward him. Mm-hmm. But now, in the presence of Olaf's holy light and delightful smells, mm-hmm. um, they all go back to their places and they sit down. Yeah, and there's going to be an unholy scrum later when all those guys try to get their heads back at once. <laughs> it's straight out of Monty Python. It's great. <laughs> now, fortunately, Guest doesn't stick around for that. He's up the rope and out of the mound where he finds that everyone except for Yolstein and Snati the Wonder Dog have gone mad with fear. Mm. They're able to revive the other men by splashing them with holy water, of course. But then the earth shakes and a series of massive waves threatens to kill them all. Right. Remember, they're they're out on the um, on that that little reef, right? That yeah. atoll, and so they're kind of very exposed at this moment. That's right. And the dying forces of paganism aren't done trying to destroy them. It's not to the wonder dog has to dive into the sea to find a way back to dry land. But no, oh no, John, Snotty succumbs to the evil power of Ragnar no. under the water, and he drowns in the waves. See. That one hurts. That's just mean. Don't don't drown the dog. Rest in power, Snotty. <laughs> now, there's no time for mourning, Snotty. And maybe maybe he will reemerge to be one of our thingmen. But <laughs> for now, we have to focus on what's happening. The men are still in danger. Mm-hmm. And they finally escape when Jolstein uses his crucifix and his holy water to part the seas. I feel like I've seen that motif somewhere before. Yeah, maybe, possibly. And so the, the party is able to walk through to dry land. And mm-hmm. and then they make their way home to Norway with Guest mourning the loss of his wonder dog. See, now that sounds like you're like being a smart guy, but it's actually in the saga that he regards that as a heavy loss. Yes. He doesn't really well, care about is. anybody else who's gotten killed, but he's really upset oh. about the dog. Uh, me too. Snotty is right. the wonder dog. Right. Uh, Now, there's clearly been a tonal change in this last part of the saga. The age of Christianity has now come, and all the old powers and relationships of spirits and mound dwellers and trolls, all of that is altered and diminished in the face of Christianity. Yeah, and there's still a lot of dangerous power attached to the old ways, but ultimately that strength is helpless against a man like Jolstein, who is armed with his faith. One might almost suspect the author of a kind of prejudice here. One might. Uh, but at least it's a consistent prejudice. You gotta love him for that. Yeah. 
Now, if I really wanted to stretch a point, I could give our author some credit here for a fairly sophisticated rhetorical game. Uh, the text is setting up a conceptual chiasmus, an inversion, a reversal of ideas. We have the narrative devices of saints' lives used to characterize a pagan land spirit while molding pre-Christian story elements to serve a pro-Christian theme. Mm -hmm. But I'd feel a lot more comfortable about saying that if I were sure it was a deliberate rhetorical move and not just a bunch of spaghetti thrown at the wall. You know, your guess is as good as mine on that, John. But there does seem to be some intentionality here. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I have to admit, I see a lot of stringy stains on the wall behind the table where the saga was written. So <laughs> who knows? But right now, yeah. you know, rather than delve into that big question, which right. is we'll save question, that for judgments. We've got a baptism to attend. Oh, that's right. A uh, guest promised to convert to Christianity back there. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no uh, if there's no uh, atheists in a foxhole, there's no pagans in a grave mound. Uh, and Guest is a man of his word. So as soon as they get back to the king's court at Trondheim, he agrees to undergo the ceremony and takes the Christian faith. And why wouldn't he? And, <laughs> There's at least one reason. Here, <laughs> this is kind of important. Here it comes, people. Anyone who's uh -huh. squeamish, you might want to fast forward about, let's say, a minute or two. And in saga right. terms, just skip to the end. Now, in, in that night, uh, Guest has a dream vision of his father, Barth Snafelsas. And Barth is not best pleased about his son's new religion. It's a poor deed you've done, renouncing your faith mm -hmm. and the faith of your fathers. You allowed yourself to be forced to change your faith due to a lack of character. For that, you shall lose both your eyes. And his oh, father reaches me. out and jabs his hands into Guest's eyes. And then Guest wakes up, presumably screaming, and his eyes burst out of his head. Oof. And as a result, he dies. Now that's a dream vision. I know you're not a big fan of dreams, but you seem to like <laughs> that one. I mean, it's something different. <laughs> yeah, there's not going to be any obscure truths revealed through dream interpretation this time. It's a pretty... Yeah, no, that's a pretty straightforward message. Uh, yeah. And also, this has to be the most jarring ending we've ever seen in a saga. That's right. I mean, we once saw a protagonist chased down and killed by a random Scottish giant. But this... I, you were just saying, there's still a lot of power and threat attached to the pagan past. Absolutely, yeah. And we've talked before about the years around the conversion. They're often depicted as a dangerous time when supernatural forces and the undead are restless and often angry, pushing back against what's happening. Right. And in that respect, this is just a more intense example of the kind of thing we've seen in other conversion-era sagas. But it's still a hell of an image to end on. Mm. Uh, I mean, sort of somebody waking up in bed screaming and then his eyes burst out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it would be a hell of an image, I should say, if our author had actually ended the saga there. And this is one of those moments where I begin to suspect this author of not necessarily being uh, the most talented of authors. Uh, instead, he goes on for a few hundred more words to tell a story, a completely unrelated story, about how Guest's brothers Thord and Thorvald return to Iceland and eventually support Tunguad in a lawsuit before settling down to marry and raise families. Well, first of all, we were wondering what happened to Thord and Thorvald, mm -hmm. so now we get to find out. There you go. Second of all, if it wants to be counted as a family saga, we need lawsuits and feuds. I mean, that's just... Sure. It's the rule. 
So so he's gotten his uh, his little shoehorn out, and he's just gonna wedge that thing right in there at the end. Exactly. Maybe maybe some would say that's a bit of a whimper to end on, but that's the saga of Barth, the god of Snifle. Now. There are a few things we could probably explore in a bit more detail, but we don't need to do that right now. No, no. Uh, we're, we'll we'll hint at some of that stuff next time uh, when we're planning an interview with our good friend Will Beal, an actual scholar of Barth Saga and a friend of ours. Now, we're going to throw down the gauntlet to Will and see if he can't convince us to maybe add a point or two to our rating of this saga before the Judgment episode. I'm going to keep an open mind. Um <laughs> that first part was a little rough, but once you get yeah. into Guest Saga, the damn thing's great. Yeah, but go back and read chapters 1 through 11, uh, and we'll see. Uh, but, I mean, it'll be great to talk with Will and see what someone who's actually tried to understand this saga gets out of it. <laughs> As opposed to us, you mean? As opposed to me, definitely. Uh, but we'll get into that next time. Uh, for now, let's uh, let's dig into the listener rune sack. Sure, yes. Okay. And before we jump into the rune sack, let's, uh, let's promote it a little bit. If you want to interact with us, if you want to ask a question or leave us a comment, you can reach us through the usual channels. You can get us on Twitter at SagaThingPod or on Facebook where we are SagaThingPodcast. We're also on Instagram at SagaThingPodcast or you can reach us at our email address, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. And John, our first question for today comes from our friend Owen, the god of all sorts of odd locales. Hello, Owen. That's a hell of a title. It is, yes. Now, we've heard from Owen before. Um, he's a he's a regular here in the rune sack. In fact, uh, he often leaves things behind just so he can he can show up again later and say, hey, I think I forgot something down there. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we, we're always move. finding bits of Owen in the rune sack. Oh. <laughs> now, Owen writes, while listening to your recent coverage of Bard Saga, I heard something that reminded me of something. You referred to Skeggy, Helga's possible captor, as Skeggy of Midfjord. That reminded me of another Skeggy of Midfjord, the legendary mound raider and owner of Skofnung, the sword. Now, I don't have Barth Saga, so I can't confirm that Skeggy is referred to this way in the text, and I'm not sure of the timeline. So they're probably just two different people with different names. However, I wonder if there's any possibility that they're the same person. I hope you can clear this up. So what do you think, John? Uh, all right. Well, first things first. Uh, yes, Owen, they are the same person. And we we should have pointed him out when he came up in this saga. Uh, Skeggy of Midfjord is one of those nexus figures in the literature. Uh, he shows up in a bunch of different places, six or seven sagas, uh, a few thotter for good measure, and uh, also in uh, Landama book. Yeah. Right? It, w- it would take too long to provide a full biography of Skeggy here. But I think he'd make an interesting case study for a guy whose story, rather than being sort of in one saga, gets parceled out to different texts. Are you uh, suggesting that we do another saga brief? Because <laughs> I thought we were going to get through one episode without uh, making false promises. Look, I want to get to all this stuff. Uh, for the moment, though, I can connect a few dots for Owen. So Skeggy is mentioned in the in Lana book, in the Book of Settlements, as the man who raided the tomb of the legendary king Hrolf Kraki. Mm-hmm. And he took the sword Skofnung from that tomb where it had been laid with Hrolf a few hundred years earlier. Do you mind if I, uh, I throw in a side note here? I think I know what it's going to be, so go ahead. Yeah, well, for those of you who have recently read Beowulf for a class, for example, my students. We just finished that one, mm-hmm. and now we're reading The Song of Roland. So Beowulf is fresh in their mind. 
So Hrolf is another version of the same legendary figure that appears in Beowulf as Hrolfolf, that is King Hrothgar's nephew. He doesn't have just a cool sword in that version, though. This is true. No, all he's accused of is burning Harrod uh, down in that. Right. One. But whatever. Uh, now later, uh, Skeggy loans that same sword, Skofnung, to Cormac Ogmundson before a duel in Cormac's side. I remember. Yeah, of course you do. This is the source of one of the all-time great lines in saga literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Skeggy has to explain to Cormac how the sword works, and it turns out it's a little complicated. Yeah. Uh, a pouch goes with the sword, but you are to leave that alone. The sun is not to shine on the pommel of the sword hilt, and you are not to wield the sword unless you're getting ready for combat. But if you do find yourself on a battlefield, sit by yourself and draw it there. Hold the sword out in front of you and blow on it. Then a little snake will crawl out from under the hilt. Turn the sword sideways and make it possible for him to crawl back under the hilt. And Cormac famously replies in Saga Thing lore and in Sagas, what will you sorcerers think of next? I love that line. Still uh, good. Anyway, uh, Skeggy later shows up in Njal's saga, in Gretter's saga. He gets a mention in Gunlag's saga. And we're not done with him because he has a minor role to play in Lockstall's saga and a major one in the saga of Thord Menace. So in other words, Skeggy gets around. Mm-hmm. which makes him a great choice as a figure to include in a saga like Barth Saga, which is short on historical connections and verifiable detail. Right. Uh, yeah, a guy like Skeggy makes kind of an implicit argument for this saga's place among the corpus of Icelanders' saga literature. Yeah. So we're going to keep an eye out for Skeggy, and we'll make sure to uh, wave at him next time he stops by. Right. Uh, oh, and uh, one final note about that sword, by the way. Uh, in Laxdala, we learn that the sword Skolfnung gets passed down through Skeggy's family and ends up in the hands of a man named Yeller Thorkelson, who is the last known bearer of the blade. So when we get to Laxdala Saga, we'll learn the final fate of Skeggy's famous sword. Yes. All right. Great. Uh, we have time for uh, one more, I think, if you want. Okay. Um, hey, Andy? Yes, John? Uh, it seems to me that uh, there's a pattern developing here. You're always the one asking the runesack questions. I'm always the one answering them. Well, first of all, I have the runesack right here. So, duh. <laughs> Come on. And it's also not entirely true, my friend. Uh, you can look back at past episodes and find that I've answered at least 10 to 20% of the questions. Oh. And I've added some light supplemental commentary to your answers at times. So... You know, it's a it's a a hefty 10 to 20 percent, you say. Yes. Uh, I hope you haven't strained yourself. No, I feel I feel I'm spry. Yes, I'm great. (laughs) But I'm guessing that you want to ask me a question. I do. Would you mind? Yeah. But see, like I said, the problem is the rune sack is here in Mississippi with me. And and I. Yep. Got it. Uh, Now the rune sack is here in Massachusetts with me. So there. Damn that virtual rune sack. See, traversing time and space in the blink of an eye. Timey-wimey stuff and all that. Oh, it's so convenient. It is. It's also bigger on the inside. Now, let <laughs> me just uh, sift through the bag here. Ah, uh, yes, here we go. Here's one. Uh, how am I doing so far? I, I mean, I didn't hear anything. How am I supposed to know that you were rooting around in the sack? Foley work, my friend. It's added in post. It isn't. It isn't added in post. You're supposed <laughs> it to do it your with your post. With your mouth. It's added when you do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make you look like an ass. Take that, John Sexton. Wow. So here's a here's a good question from Leia, who contacted us via email. First, 
I would like to tell you how much I enjoy Saga Thing. Now, you don't need to. We don't need that kind of smoke blown. Uh, <laughs> thank you, though. I mean, it goes without saying everyone enjoys Saga Thing. Well, uh, having just discovered it in April, it's been a pleasure to listen. Uh, I just finished Flow Mana Saga, and I have a question. You spoke at length about the conversion aspect of that saga, yet after Thorgils converts and renounces Thor, why does he continue to give Thor-related names to his children? Is this another example of the author's laziness and attention to detail, or do you think there's another reason? I don't know why this stood out to me so much, but I kept thinking about it while listening. Even his last child with Helga seems to have been given a Thor-related name. Or maybe I'm just overthinking this. What are your thoughts? Mm. Thank you for your question, Leia. Flow Mana seems like a lifetime ago, John. When did we do that? It was. Uh, if Leia is just finishing Flow Mana, she's about to embark on the exciting but nearly endless journey of Ail Saga. Oh my. That's going to take a while, Leia. I hope you're ready. Now, what are, what are the chances that Leia ever hears this episode, John? What if she never makes it out of Ail Saga? I mean, we're going to have to trust that Leia will find her way through that desert and someday make her way to the Oasis. She'll get here eventually. I don't think Ail Saga is a desert. How dare you? <laughs> How dare a you? Tundra, though? perhaps? It, there's there's plenty of fruit to be enjoyed. I'm thinking that she'll get so excited and she'll she'll just sit down under a tree and just keep enjoying the fruits of that tree that is Ale Saga. Uh-huh. Now that you've created that little metaphor for yourself, uh, do you have anything else to say in response to this question, or are you just going to get poetical at us? Well, let me just say this. Leia, when you get here, you can finally drop that grudge you've been holding against me for not responding to your email. Because in <laughs> real time, we're, we're responding really quickly. Are we? Are we really? Yes. Yeah. I think she sent the question like a week ago. It, it hasn't even been. No, no. Like, I, I mean, we're not really answering the question yet is my point. Ah. Uh, more to the point, you still aren't answering the question. Oh, well, that's, yeah, you know. So, you know I'm not good at remembering names, Eric, right? <laughs> <laughs> Eric now. All right. Yes, Eric now. Uh, but I did read Leia's question when she sent it, and I dove back into Flow on a Saga for some context just to make sure I remembered who's who. Uh-huh, as in you didn't remember Flow on a Saga. Well, first of all, it was a long... <laughs> I mean, it was, that was pre-Ale Saga. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but yes, I, I do remember that Flow Mana Saga featured Thorgil's Scarleg's stepson and his wandering odyssey across the ocean and around Greenland. Mm -hmm. I remembered his rejection of Thor and his dreams of Thor, where Thor was threatening him constantly. I remember the little son, Thorfinn, and the polar bear, when he says oh, there's yes. a big doggy outside. Remember that? Mm -hmm. I also remembered that poor Thorfinn... Uh, was swept overboard in a tragedy that made the whole episode seem kind of pointless. And I also remember that Thorgils married uh, Helga when uh, she was very young and he was very old. So that's what I remember to yeah. flow Monosaga. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good list, although I'm a little skeptical given that you've just admitted that you looked it up. No, no, no. I remembered that's I'm, I'm telling you what I remembered. Sure. What I didn't remember was all of his children. Uh-huh. And Leia's right. Most of their names are compounds featuring Thor. I think his first son is uh, Thorleif. And then he has a daughter named Thorny. Mm -hmm. And then poor Thorfinn, of course. Right. And Thorfinn is born after Thorgils converts to Christianity. That's right. So he chooses a Thor name after that conversion. And after mm -hmm. Thor has been pestering him and putting him on this, this wild you know, kind of odyssey. 
Right. Um, and when he eventually returns to Iceland after all of that and Thorfinn dies, he gets married again um, as an older man. And he, he manages to father a few more kids when he's in his 50s. And mm-hmm. these kids are Grimm and Ilugi. And as Leia was indicating, Thord. Now, only one of their names features Thor. And so the question is, why? Why does that keep happening? So Leia asks if this is carelessness on the part of the author. Well, yeah, that's certainly possible. Um, mm-hmm. We thought that that saga was a little bit messy in the first place. So that's certainly <laughs> right. possible. Not the, uh, not the best reviewed saga on, right. this, uh, on this podcast. But that said, the Icelanders of the 13th and 14th century took their genealogies very seriously. And given right. that two of Thorgil's descendants are important bishops in Iceland, I think it's quite likely that the family tree was preserved with some accuracy, at least as far as Thorgil's marriage to Helga at the end is concerned. Mm-hmm. And the marriage yielded a son named Thorth, which also happens to be Thorgil's own father's name. Yes. So perhaps we can explain the appearance of Thorth that way, saying it's just a familial thing. Mm-hmm. But that's not the whole picture. He also got Thorleif, Thorny, and Thorfinn as children. Those are all Thor names. And while John is the resident name expert around here, I at least know that names featuring Thor compounds are popular throughout medieval Iceland, both in pre- and post-conversion era Iceland. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. Right. Unfortunately uh, for us, you don't have to be a genius to figure it out. Uh, Thor was, of course, the most popular god in Scandinavia. So, you know, it makes sense that we'd be seeing his name popping up a lot in both personal and place names. Mm-hmm. And that's especially true in Iceland, where we see a lot of Thor and some Freyr compound, compound names. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, I was actually curious about the popularity of Thor names in the sagas. Uh, so I did a little informal study on this subject. You did? I did, yes. Again, okay. very informal study. Emphasis on that. So I used the index of major characters at the back of the volume five of the complete sagas of Icelanders that we have. And <laughs> so John, your your informal study is that you read somebody else's study. <laughs> no, no, that's not a study, John. Fair it's enough. a list. Okay. Some I, anonymous grad student who was assigned the job of creating that index. I doubt it was a grad student, but sure, whoever did that, I was working with their their material Fair in order to think about some of this stuff. I did the study. They just did a list. Come on. Give me some credit. Okay. I All the credit. But one of the things I'm trying to make clear here is it's by no means an exhaustive survey of the names in the sagas. It's a, a list of kind of major characters. But it does give a rough idea. And that's kind of what I was looking for. So I, I went through that and I counted up each unique name for every letter of the alphabet. Right. And we should be clear that the um, the index of major characters. Right? So when you say that, what you mean is characters who appear in multiple sagas. Yes. Right, so this is a representation of the most kind of uh, widely talked about figures in the sagas. Uh, right. So and it could be two sagas. It's just a lot of them are just yeah, two sagas. Yeah. Uh, so which letters were most popular? Well, I thought it was interesting. A has 27 unique names. Uh, the most popular of those is, is Ausbjorn. Uh, but it only appears five times on that list. So not terribly impressive. The letter H actually had the most unique names with around 52 unique mm. names. And the most popular of those were Hall-based names like Hallstein or Haldor, uh, which is a Thor compound, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I found something like 21 Hall names on that list. Okay, but what about the Thor names? I assume that the T or Thorn section would have been one of the biggest. Yeah, it, well, it, I mean, it wasn't the biggest in terms of unique names. That honor went to H. Uh, but there were only 46 unique names in the T or Thorn section. 
Uh, but it was, this is important, the biggest in terms of number of names listed. And the most popular, of course, are the Thor-based names, with Thor right. and Thordis coming in first with 21 separate instances. And then there was Thorkel with 19, Thorstein with 14, Thorvald with 11, and so on and so forth. The point is that these Thor names were extremely popular within the sagas. But not just in the sagas. If you look at the Lanama book, for example, you'll find a similar breakdown of naming patterns uh, with the name Thor uh, leading the list. Mm-hmm. And I think there were something like 19 variations on Thor compound names in the Lanama book index. So I looked there as well. Mm-hmm. And all of that suggests one of two things to me that it can help to answer so, this question. I mean, we can start with an obvious one. Thor names were popular in medieval Iceland. You're a genius, John. Yes, that's the first thing. It doesn't seem like a, a real big stretch there. But old <laughs> no, habits, it's a it's 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 pretty straightforward. Yeah. But I think the point that, that we can make here is that old habits die hard, especially right. when it comes to names. Because even when a culture shifts, naming traditions often stick around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And this makes sense for medieval Iceland, where the names for children were more often inspired by the names of the recently deceased relatives, noteworthy friends, heroic figures than by, say, religious devotion. That doesn't tend to play a major role in these names. Right, right. We see that quite a lot in the sagas, uh, especially when you see, as we see at the end with Thord, uh, children being named after their grandfathers. Right. right. That's a that's a very common thing. And so the, the name would have jumped over the kind of conversion period. That's right. Uh, but I don't really remember Thorgil's Skarleg Stepson having a lot of extended family beyond Thord that he named his children after. That's also correct. There isn't like a thorny or anything. No, no. All of those other names, and I went back and checked, yeah, he doesn't have all of those things. And and Mm -hmm. actually, as you look through the sagas, you know, while you will have occasionally a person named after someone um, from the previous generations, you have, they have a lot of kids. And so they name them all kinds of things for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, So I also want to point out something else in terms of, you know, just the, 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 the concept of writing sagas and what it takes to write a saga. I also think that Thor names are convenient tools for saga authors who are trying to set their story in a distant pagan past. The prevalence of Thor names are an easy shorthand for identifying characters born before the conversion or at least close to it. If we imagine that they don't have a full genealogy for characters mentioned in every saga, it makes sense that the saga authors would maybe lean more heavily on Thor names for pre-conversion Iceland. And I have to think that probably happened a lot. So you're arguing that they use Thor names to fill in gaps in the genealogical record. I think it's one of the easy things that they could turn to, yes. Huh. But you're not discrediting the very real possibility that Thor names are just popular in both pre- and post-conversion Iceland. Absolutely not. No, I think that's the most likely answer to the question of why Thorgil's children have Thor names and why we tend to see so many Thor names in the sagas. There are a lot of Thor names because there were just a lot of people with Thor-based names throughout Icelandic history. It's just a, the fact of the matter. Right, but, but we I'm can also look sh- at, you know, if you travel to Iceland today, yeah. you're going to find people with uh, names that have Thor as an element in their names. Uh, and we're a little over a thousand years past the conversion at this point. Exactly. And you're also going to find today people with names of the actual gods. So while they mm-hmm. you know, maybe don't believe in the existence of those gods anymore, they're, they're taking those names of the gods and giving them to their children. So you will find people whose names are not Thor compounds. You'll find people that are named 
Thor or Freyr or Freya or uh, even Odin mm-hmm. uh, exists as a name in Iceland currently. Um, but I, I, I'm sure that an author, I think this is also worth pointing out because these are works of historical fiction. And I have a feeling that authors trying to think of character names for pre-conversion Iceland are also going to lean heavily on Thor names because it establishes something very clear. Okay. Um, that took a little bit longer than I expected, but okay. But John, was the journey worth it in the end? You got to think about it that way. I, that's not for me to decide. That's up to the listeners. Okay. Well, all right. Hopefully, hopefully you're kind listeners. <laughs> for, all right. Now, I think that's about it for this episode. It's time to hang up our iron shoes and, and rest for a while. Yeah, but not too long. Uh, we'll be speaking with Will Beal soon, and then we'll be hauling this saga before the court to answer for its crimes. Mm. So really, we're not done with this at all. If you've got a question, a comment, or a raging migraine brought on by the description of guests' eye-gouging death, let us know. Uh, do you want to tell people how to get in touch with us? I mean, I already did that earlier. It's saga thing something ah, or other in, at, at right. so-and-so a place. You know, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I guess you can rewind the podcast about 10 minutes and listen to those again. Or you can make yourself a nice cup of herbal tea, maybe put on some soothing white noise, get yourself comfortable, fall asleep, and send us a dream vision of you asking a question. Mm. But don't stay in there too long, or the snuffle god will get you. Boo! (laughs) All right. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Yeah, he's agreed to enter a kind of novitiate phase. Do you hear that? Nope. It's the song Tequila. Nice. My son has a, a um, what would you call it? a An animatronic llama on a leash okay. that when he presses the button, it, it, it walks, it wiggles. And plays that song, and then he likes to dance behind it as it goes. So that's what's happening while we're recording. Tequila. (laughs) Yes, tequila. (laughs) That's great. Um, All right, where were we?